0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I was sitting in my parents' backyard down in Naples with my dad. He was just starting to get his command of language back. And he was trying to articulate, he had a, he had a really lucid day because, you know, some days you couldn't understand him. He was gibberish. And then other days it was like, you know, he was almost like, you know, 80% of his former self with that vault of vocabulary. And he said, he was, he was like, you know, I made the choice to live. I was like, what come again? Like, what are you talking about? So here I'm thinking, my dad doesn't even remember what happened to him. And he starts to describe to me the experience of coming out of the impact of the second stroke. And the second stroke was in a quieter part of his brain, but it completely robbed him of his personality, his spirit, and his will to live. And he remembered that moment. And he started describing to me this choice he made. And at first, the choice was, I've done everything I was put on this earth to do. I'm okay. I raised a beautiful family. I've had an incredible career. My family's well taken care of. I'm ready to go. And a couple days later, as he recalls it, he was like, no, you know what? I'm not. I still have work to do in this lifetime. And this time it's different work. It's not corporate work. And by that time I had goosebumps. I had tears just streaming down my face and I was holding his hand and I said oh my god dad I get it now you and I have both been living business and now we're shifting to the business of living
2: I'm Srini Rao and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: A lot can happen in the next 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
2: Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap2Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap2Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Shelly, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. Um, you know, I think it's really kind of an interesting and fitting time to be talking to somebody who wrote a, a book called A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Success Holbatical, um, particularly because I think we're being forced almost in, at this point uh, in our history to really contend with the fact that this is going to become reality for a lot of people. But before we get to that, um, I want to start by asking what I think is a very significant question given the content of the book and, and having read it. Uh, and that is, what is one of the most important things that you learned from your father, uh, that have influenced, has influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I really think it's, you can do anything you put your mind to. That was always his, that was always his mantra and he was determined and ambitious and i watched him climb the corporate ladder and funny enough i just sort of you know without without thinking fell into um fell into his footsteps and i really kind of chased his dream versus mine you know mm. and and now what i love to now i i've thought about how i would flip that phrase it's like you can do anything that your soul wants you to do
2: yeah It's it's funny, right? Because the other thing is, you from from having read the book, I know this. You weren't exactly like you know, uh, you know, sort of like that kid in the yearbook who was like most likely to be successful. You said basically that (laughs) when you got you know sent to your boarding school, you described your posse at the school as the island of misfit toys, the unrated version where the misfit toys have sex, money, and drug habits. So, you mean when your dad tells you you can do anything, and that's the version of the daughter that he's dealing with? How does that dynamic play out?
1: Oh yeah, it was it was um, tense and rough for for many years. And what's interesting is, yeah, so my you know that was my dad's mantra and and philosophy in life, and it was quite successful for him. Now he had a daughter, so I'm the eldest of two. I have a younger sister, and I came out of the womb a rebel. And I don't think my parents ever knew what to do with me. They were just like they did not know what the fuck hit them. <laughs> so it was so I came out rebelling against everything rebelling against my parents and authority and religion and you name it all the things and so um so that it, it was it was really tough and it makes it even more ironic that I ended up following in his footsteps because it was the exact thing that I was rebelling against for so many years and then I started to see it as a ticket to the things I wanted in the world. It was a shiny lifestyle, which to me was interesting at the time. It was um, a ticket around the world to see all of these amazing places that I used to, you know, spin, see, spinning the globe in my dad's office. So we um it was it was very, it was very tense. I mean, you know, for a while I think my parents were just happy I wasn't in jail. And then I started to course correct. <laughs> But I had to do it on my own and on my own terms, you know, as a rebel does.
2: Yeah. Um, What about the relationship between you and your sister and the dynamic between how the relationship with your parents and your sister is different from the one you guys had, you had with your parents?
1: I, so my sister and I, until we were, I think my sister and I didn't get along until we went, uh, until I went to college. And so, I, funny, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. And, and there was not much of a relationship because I was constantly <clears throat> creating t- that tension in the household. Yeah. And I was making myself miserable. I was making my parents miserable. And my parents were young parents. They had me, I think I said this in the book. They had me when they were 23 years old, still living in married student housing at the University of Cincinnati. So they were kind of over their heads with like, they both come from large families. They were, The eldest child, both of them are the eldest of one of five and one of six. And they wanted to have this small family. And I think they, they viewed that as a very idyllic thing and it was going to be easier. And then, you know, I come shooting out, (laughs) bucking against everything. So my sister didn't like that. You know, she bore the brunt of. A lot of it. We had we had our moments in time where we loved to put our roller skates on and jam down in our basement to the BGS and and Olivia Newton John and all the things that were um, the rage at that at that point in time. But she really like you know she did not like me because I wasn't loving of her. You know I didn't want her to be around. I you know she would tell on me, tattle on me all the time. And so I always felt like it was the three other people in the household versus me at mm. that time. And it definitely took me growing up and, and really kind of leaving you know my, uh, my sex, dr- drugs, and rock and roll kind of you know, addiction to, uh, yeah. to really start to see the possibility and the opportunity. And first, it was with my sister, and she and I started to become close, and then we started to travel together, and now we're best friends. And it was later, probably in my 30s, where I really started, maybe started in my first sabbatical, which was around 26. um, And I started to really develop that relationship, first with my mom and then with my dad.
2: Hmm. So, you know, one of the things I wonder is, where did the course correct begin? I mean, how do you course correct from a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll to get to the top of, you know, being somebody who is so high up at a company like Harley-Davidson? That doesn't yeah. seem like a likely trajectory.
1: No, no, it doesn't. And I and I consider myself very fortunate. I mean, you know, in all of this, I've had amazing good fortune and a lot of privilege along the way, which which I acknowledge and I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, you know, the course correct started when I, I really think I started to wonder, like, am I going to get into college? Like, if I don't get my act together, if I just don't get my shit together, then what's going to happen to me? And so I started to come to that conclusion on my own. And to be honest, you know, I'm I'm not only a, a rebel, I'm an Enneagram seven for anybody who's familiar with the Enneagram. So I'm like, the adventurer the epicurean and i was like there's there's more out there and i started to wonder am i rebelling against simple boredom because i was raised in the you know the western suburbs of minneapolis minnesota it's an absolutely amazing place and at the same time i didn't feel like those were my people and so i i honestly in reflection think the course correct began when i was like no you know what i want to go find my people and it was the first indication I had of not rebelling against something, but instead starting to rebel for something. And that became really pivotal for me later on. I don't think I had it that crystallized in in those early days, but I really started to think about, no, this is my opportunity. If I if I really kind of get myself together. Get into a decent university, and then I can actually start to travel this wide world and find my people. And I feel like, honestly, that's part of the soul search that I was on for decades.
2: Hmm. So I, I really want to come back to um, something. You, I mean, I, I really did appreciate the fact that you acknowledged privilege, and you have even said it yourself at some point in the book. Like I'm acknowledging the fact. In fact, I remember I, I actually grabbed that quote. Um, even as I write these words, I am I'm embarrassed how privileged. Uh, they sound, and I I wanted to come back to that specifically because I remember the day I finished reading the book before we were supposed to have this interview. That was like right at when I started my morning writing session, and the blog post that came out was the privileged lives of the spiritually bankrupt. <laughs> and I haven't published that anywhere, but I thought, oh, actually, let me actually talk to Shelley about this, not as you know uh, an attack on your work, but I mean, your books like yours, books like mine, content like mine, content like yours. Let's be very clear: it is very much. You know, something that addresses a population that um, lives lives of privilege. I, you know, and sure, yes, is it accessible to anybody? By all means. But, you know, how many people who are, working three jobs to keep food on the table or you know growing up in in you know the hood with bullets being shot at them have the luxury to like indulge in their spiritual bankruptcy they have to deal with their potential actual bankruptcy yeah. and i figured you know given sort of the life that you had i thought you know i just want to hear your thoughts on that particularly in the context of what we're dealing with at the moment
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, this is rich and I'm glad that you're bringing it up. I, I, so yes to all of the things you said about, you know, about privilege and about how, you know, that does, that does set us apart. And to be honest, I think because of that, I stayed on the path that I was on for so long. Right. And, and I did feel, I felt emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. Uh, those are exactly, I, you know, th- those are exactly the words that I used and I was like, how can you get this successful and feel so empty inside? Where is the full part of successful? And what I've realized in going on this journey is that it is accessible to all of us because I ended up kind of going the long way around the barn, which was taking, you know, traveling all over the place, which was also a huge privilege right? You know, going to France and going to New Zealand and going to all of the places. And what I realized in the end is the power of place can feed our soul, but it can't fix it. That's our work. Yeah. And, and so to get to, you know, more pointedly to your question, I think what we can do in any situation is we can pause. We can get into being versus doing. And I really believe that right now, especially in this crisis, this pandemic that we're in at the moment with coronavirus running rampant, people are scared to slow down because slowing down means I might actually have to listen to myself. I might Mm. actually come face to face with what I'm pretending not to know what I've been numbing out of for so long through busyness and food and booze and, and who knows what else, right? We all have our flavor of this.
5: Right.
1: And yeah. so I think it starts there, which, which we can do, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, that's a hard choice to make to say, I'm not going to do the Netflix binge now, you know, right. or, or doing something like listening to a podcast instead of choosing to turn on mindless television, because I'm a big believer, I mean, yours is yours is one that I love, I'm a big believer in like the edutainment, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm doing something, I'm fueling my soul, and I'm helping myself, you know, I'm enriching myself, and I'm creating the life that I want to live, and I'm learning from others who are trying to do the same. So I don't know if this is getting it exactly what you asked. I hope
2: it's getting close. We're getting close. I still, I'm not going to let it go that easily, uh, only because I still have more, you know, I I said, you know, what you consume uh, will have a huge impact on what you create. I actually wrote a, a blog post called that this week. And of course, right now you have two options. You can create content that inspires hope or, you know, consume content that stokes fear. But I also think it's something we have to acknowledge is that there are a lot of people who I think if you tell them, slow down, listen, it's like, wait a minute. I mean out of a roof on my head tomorrow. I don't know how I'm gonna pay rent tomorrow. And I think that it, you know, right now, you know, what I said is that, you know, for and then I remember I wrote another piece on Medium, which I didn't share with our newsletter. I said, you know, there's probably never been a more clear moment in history that shows us where American individualism has led us and why we have to make a shift to collectivism, because for the first time ever, we're being forced not to think about ourselves. And, and you, if you think about it, I mean the entire premise of a personal brand, social media is all driven by self-interest. Uh-huh. Um, even if we claim that, hey, I'm you know here to contribute, I'm here to serve, who am I kidding? Like I got, you know, I, I said, you know, it's like, look, I reap the spoils of building this platform. I said, you guys might have interpreted my long Facebook status updates as being generous. I'm like, but I took your attention to the bank and cashed in on it with a Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. bestseller. Um, who do you think got a, got the better end of that deal? That's a very privileged position to be in. Yes. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's what I, I guess I would, I you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to fight with you, but my pushback on it is, okay, well, what about the person who literally feels like they may not have a roof over their head tomorrow?
1: Yeah. And I, believe me, I get that. And that's where I think we can help to support that person, right? So I love, I love the collectivism uh, concept that you just talked about because that is it, right? I love that. You know, there is good that comes from crisis. And you and I were both, we both quoted Winston Churchill, right? And we said, yeah. never let a good crisis go to waste. And so I think part of that is seeing people like, you know, post 9 11, what's happening now in recession times, the world comes together, communities mm-hmm. come together. So part of it is, I think it's our obligation to support people, right? So a great example of that is I love what the CEO of Zoom just did, announced like a day or two ago. And he said, I'm going to give out all of my tools for free to the education system to support e-learning.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that to me is one example. So I'm not, believe me, I'm not taking myself off the hook in this, but I am also, I am also asking myself every single day, how can I serve my community, serve my clients, and then serve others? What Mm -hmm. do others need from me in this, you know, in, in (laughs) this moment in time, which I think is probably a bigger reflection of like, what do people always need from us? Why is it in times of crisis that we say, slow down? Why is it in times of crisis that we are more wholehearted and kind to our neighbors? Mm -hmm. And how do we start to live these principles throughout, you know, every day, every day of our lives? Yeah. So I do think there's a lesson in that because this is a moment in time that I hope will adjust our behavior going forward. And I hope that people who, right now, I know the the kind of people you're talking about are probably in the restaurant. There are many industries, but for sure they're in the restaurant industry right now. And they've been Mm -hmm. laid off because there's no dine-in options in so many of the cities, including Chicago, where I'm sitting right now. And that's going to impact and hurt a lot of people. Right, So one of my mantras is, even though I really, really want to cook at home and I cook a lot at home, I am supporting my neighborhood. I am not, I'm not canceling any of my memberships. I am supporting my neighborhood restaurants because so many of them have been immensely creative in coming up with subscription services and family meals and curbside pickup and all of that. I want to reward that creativity and I want to make sure we all come out the other side of it.
2: For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that the CEO of Zoom in education because we, you know, we were we literally just launched a new subscription offer called Unmistakable Creative Prime, which was you know all of our courses, a monthly call, and uh, you know a bunch of other stuff inside our, our uh, private social network. And one of the you know things we wanted to add was hey, you know, for every person who donates, will you know who, who basically subscribes, you know, on the annual uh, tier, we will make a uh, donation to a creative project on donors choose. And of course, naturally, with schools closed, that. Put us right. into a situation where that wasn't an option, and so we basically followed suit exactly. Doing what the Zoom CEO did, and we said, "Look, just if you have a .edu email address, you're a professor. Um, send it to us. We'll, you're, we basically will provide it to anybody who's an educator, whether you're a school teacher. So, I mean, I'm, you know, it, like by now, many of you will have heard me and our community manager talking about this on a previous episode. Um, but we want to keep extending that offer to to anybody if you're in the education system. We want to help support your efforts on on this this front. Um, I love
1: that. And I, I thank you for continuing to do that because it is, how can we, how can we make sure that we're, you know, we are supporting in every way possible because this is while, (laughs) while we are in industries that are going to likely benefit. Like I think my message right now is just so relevant for this time. I really just want to support people. I want the message to help people through this time of crisis and help them feel some, some level of calm and some <laughs> level of control and some level of, yeah, you know what? This is a time for resetting and reframing, mm-hmm. right? And I love how you said, like this is a time for contribution over consumption, right? And in some ways by consuming, I am contributing, right? But I want yeah. to be very selective about how and where I'm doing that. And especially as it comes to supporting um, our local communities and not giving up on people.
2: hmm yeah. Well, I think that that makes a perfect segue. Speaking of crisis, I mean, you start the book very early on you know, talking about looking at the possibility of losing your dad. And um, what I wonder is having to confront the mortality of a parent, which I think is something that we all are going to have to do in our lives at some point or another. And I think to me, to this day, that is that moment that I think I fear the most because I don't think there's a single self-help book that could ever prepare anybody for that moment. Uh To me, it's one of those things where the only way you'll ever understand that is by experiencing it. So I wonder what decisions you made about how you were going to live your life going forward based on that experience.
1: Yeah. And I agree. I just got goosebumps as you were saying that I I actually went back and said to some of my friends who had lost their parents along the way, and I, I I thought I was being as supportive as I could be in that moment. And I went back to all of them and said, I had no idea. It is just not something that you can imagine or put yourselves in the shoes of. We can just say, "How can I be there for you? How can I support you in this moment?" Even if it's just sitting and listening to somebody. And so I offer that up as you know somebody who's now been on the other side, um, uh. and I still can't imagine that next step of losing them. I feel you know again you know my privilege and, and good fortune continues. I have both of my parents. My dad is deeply impacted by the two strokes that he had. Um, and, and his first stroke, which was the most devastating, happened about eight months into what I thought was a year-long sabbatical, where I was going, you know, going on this journey to nurture and nourish my soul. And I didn't really know where I was headed. I was kind of having faith and, and trusting the universe every baby step of the way. And then this happens. So my dad, my healthy seventy-one-year-old, seriously fit as a fiddle, like still ran twenty miles a week sub eight minute mile. I mean, you name it, he was on eight different or six different boards of directors. So, you know, this is the guy who maybe took, you know, an aspirin every now and again for a headache. Wow. So to have that, you know, and this is, these are the times, right? We can never predict it. And none of us knows how long we're on this planet. And so, you know, all I could, all I could think of was, you know, Mary Oliver and what are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? As this was happening, and I was spending day after day in the ICU with my dad and my mom and my sister, and it, the, the prognosis was dismal, absolutely dismal. They did not think they would survive it. So there's, there's a part of me that's like, put that in your pipe and smoke it, you know, to the doctors who didn't believe in my dad in those early days, because two and a half years later, he is, you know, talking and, He can sort of walk with a cane and but you know, he's had to learn how to do everything all over again and from scratch at 71 years old. And so the beautiful lessons that I've learned, I mean, talk about slow down. You know, as I was starting to, we we eventually got him out of the hospital and out of rehab. He's had a second stroke, went back in rehab, and we finally took them down to their house in Naples, Florida, and said, This is where you're gonna live and where you're gonna retire. And Through living with them down there for a couple of months, I realized like our world was slowing down. These same paths that my dad and I used to run on, and you know, we'd be distracted or be thinking about business, or you know, maybe have you know music in our ears or whatever it was. We were now like walking. I was pushing him in a wheelchair. We were trying to assign language to things we were seeing. It was very experiential, and I realized my entire world had slowed down because we had no Mm -hmm. choice. And so that that was a big lesson. And I had already been served up that lesson earlier on in my sabbatical as well on my trip to France. So that was one. But I think, honestly, the bigger one and the one that really guides me today is I was sitting in my parents' backyard down in Naples with my dad. He was just starting to get his command of language back And he was trying to articulate, he had a, he had a really lucid day because, you know, some days you couldn't understand him. He was gibberish. And then other days it was like, you know, he was almost like, you know, 80% of his former self with that vault of vocabulary. And he said, he was, he was like, you know, I made the choice to live. I was like, what come again? Like, what are you talking about? So here I'm thinking my dad doesn't even remember what happened to him. And he starts to describe to me the experience of coming out of the impact of the second stroke. And the second stroke was in a quieter part of his brain, but it completely robbed him of his personality, his spirit, and his will to live. And he remembered that moment. And he started describing to me this choice he made. And at first, the choice was, I've done everything I was put on this earth to do. I'm okay. I raised a beautiful family. I've had an incredible career. My family's well taken care of. I'm ready to go. And a couple days later, as he recalls it, he was like, no, you know what? I'm not. I still have work to do in this lifetime. And this time it's different work. It's not corporate work. And by that time I had goosebumps. I had tears just streaming down my face and I was holding his hand and I said, Oh my God, dad, I get it now. You and I have both been living business and now we're shifting to the business of living. Mm. Wow. And it's still like I have tears in my eyes and I have goosebumps again like that. And so I said from that moment forward, like I made a commitment to myself and to my father that I was on my own path. This was the beginning of me creating, you know, chasing Shelly Paxton's dream and having Shelly Paxton's impact in the world and really making Solbatical a real thing. And I thought Solbatical is really about the business of living. It's a way of being that challenges us to live and lead more authentically, more courageously, and more purposefully than ever.
2: Hmm. Wow.
0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
3: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs?
2: Wow. So, one thing I wonder—I remember, you know—the sections about communicating with your dad in particular struck me because, um, you know, I, I I just think about how difficult that would be, knowing about the conversations that I've had with my dad over ten years. Like, you know, my dad is the person we kind of all go to. The man is the most self-actualized person in the world, who probably doesn't even know what the hell it means to be self-actualized. I've never seen him pick up a self-help book. We're like. The only person in the world who could be married to my mom and be this zen is my dad, um, and you know to lose that ability to communicate in the way that I have for so long, I can't imagine what that's like. So I wonder, how do you begin to, particularly like in the beginning stages when somebody loses command of language? I think that nobody realizes that we take the ability to speak for granted so much.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: how do you? Yeah, I mean, like if I had a stroke, for example, my career would be over. You know, my ability to ask questions and my command of language is quite literally what I basically allows me to put food on the table at this point. Mm -hmm. So, how do you how do you navigate that, particularly in the context of a relationship with somebody who is so important?
1: It's it's such a timely question too because I I um, well a bunch of things are coming to mind right now, so let me get my thoughts really clear. So, the timeliness is about, let's see, at the beginning of February, I spent some time in Santa Fe, and I did sort of a equine coaching. So we go in a paddock with a group of horses. And it was essentially an exercise in being and learning that the power of leadership and connection is through your energy, is through your being. And so all of these things have started to crystallize for me. And what I didn't realize is That started when I had to learn a different way of communicating with my dad, you know, communicating through a new language. So we were communicating through our energy, we were communicating through our support, Um, we were communicating through, you know, flashcards. We were finding new ways to engage with each other. And so that taught me a lot about being you know, versus doing and, and really not taking that, that connection and that energy that two humans share for granted and the power mm. of nonverbal. And, and I think sometimes I also love language and it is a big part of my livelihood as well. And also, I realize how powerful we can be without it. Mm. Wow. And yes, could you do what you do now? Not necessarily. But I'll tell you another thing that came from having to completely reframe my relationship with my dad. It, It is in one way, I mean, let's be honest, I wake up most days and I love my life and the path that I'm on and the work that I'm doing in my world. And yet there's also a little bit of sadness because my dad was always my mentor and guide. You know, I was on his path. He wanted so much for me in the corporate world. And he was very freaked out when I left Harley Davidson. I mean, freaked out probably doesn't even sum up. <laughs> he just he was like, no, you don't do this. This is crazy. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because... Now that he's had his stroke and he's gotten some memories back, but the past isn't entirely clear. He remembers in his words that I did something big. You know, that's how Mm -hmm. he'll frame it now. He doesn't really remember that I was the CMO of Harley Davidson. And the beauty is that it doesn't matter. Our relationship has been reframed. Like My dad sees things in, in the purest way possible now. And I'll never forget the first time I brought, like I held my physical book. And I brought it down to Florida to be with them. And my dad had, I'm going to have tears in my eyes even tell you the story. My dad held that book. He only has one working hand. His right arm doesn't work at all. He can't even read right now. And he held that book and he said, I am so proud of you. Most Hmm. people can't do this. Most people wouldn't have stuck with it to spend the time to tell their story. And I have never been more proud of you. And in that moment, I really believed him. And I thought, I'm lucky that we have this right now because my dad pre-stroke might have still thought I was completely effing nuts (laughs) for for being on the journey that I'm on right now and the purity of what he saw and how we connected. I just thought I'd never really heard my dad say he was proud of me in that way. Hmm.
2: Wow. So two things come from this, and maybe this is you know one of those things that I I, I always feel like this is the question that I've asked so many people that there really maybe has no answer to, um, and that is first off why does it take something like this for us to say okay now I'm going to make this fundamental shift in values from you know living business to the business of living. And how in the world do you manage to get so far and so good at what you do when it's completely out of alignment with what you really want? Because <laughs> remember, as I was telling you, you fired them, they fired me when it came to the corporate world, which is why I was like, oh, I have to talk to you because I'm the person who just got dismissed you know, involuntarily. You voluntarily left.
1: Yeah, I, I do feel like, I mean, the, the the combination of those two questions is like the million-dollar question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really, I think my personal point of view is that you know we really we're almost running from ourselves right and we're so um glennon doyle is using language that i love in her in her new book untamed and it's like we're hmm. so conditioned we're we're tamed to believe this is what society expects of us And to be honest, I grew up in a household that way, right? So some people grow up in households of, you know, lawyers or doctors or engineers or some combination of the three. And I grew up in a household where you rock the corporate world. And that's what what I knew. And I think um, the deeper I got into it, the more I was like, I actually fed off of the validation. And one of the big... Aha's for me in this whole journey is that being chief soul officer of your own life is is realizing that life and this journey is about values over validation.
2: Oof, I love that. It's funny. I mean, you grow up Indian, like yeah. I mean, our our whole culture is one of of validation, and you get validated for doing societally approved things. It's like, oh, you got into a really nice call, you know, prestigious college, and that has certain implications of you know who you are as a person. And I was like, you know, my roommate and I always make jokes with each other. You know, he's like, yeah, you're smart because you went to Berkeley. And I'm like, yeah, and you're stupid because you're not. And you know, it's just like <laughs> an uh, ongoing thing. And I was like, just so you know, just because somebody went to Berkeley, it doesn't mean they're not an asshole. There are plenty of people I went to college with who are giant assholes. Hopefully none of them are listening to this. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and some of them might think the exact same thing about me. So It is what it is.
1: Yeah, Uh, but there, there is, I think this whole validation and you know what, after some period of time, when you're getting all of the the validation and the accolades and people are telling you what you're really good at instead of you feeling what you're really good at. And that's also the thing is like, we're not in our bodies when we're, when we're seeking validation, we're in our heads, we're in our ego. Uh And when we sink into our bodies, we can tell that we're not feeling it. And that's not necessary. But I honestly, I got to the point where I forget who said it. Somebody said, just because you're good at something doesn't mean it makes you happy. And I was like, that was an oh shit moment. (laughs) I definitely was like, huh, I need to spend some time journaling about that because I think it might be true. Mm. And because, I mean, my favorite question, I think I said this earlier In in you know part of our intro talk, one of my favorite questions in coaching is, "What are you pretending not to know?" Oof. Right, because that's (laughs) the answer. Honestly, that's the answer, or or an answer. I don't think there's one answer to the question. That's a deep rabbit. Yeah, it is. But it is it is definitely getting layers and layers deeper. To that's what most of us are doing. We're we're kind of taught to live life a certain way, we're conditioned that way, then we start to feed off the validation and accolades, and we're pretending not to know how we really feel inside, which is where the emotional and spiritual bankruptcy starts to come in, right? Yeah.
2: I guess one other thing I you know I I don't gather that you have children from having read the book. I don't. Um I don't Okay. But I do think given what you just said, I wonder what you would say to parents about how, talking to their kids about this. or what would you want parents to know about this whole validation conversation?
1: Oh, I love that you're bringing that up because I I do I think there's a lot though I'm not a parent. I'm I'm an awesome aunt though <laughs> to two teenagers. Um I I think there's a lot for parents in this book and in this journey because the sooner we start helping our kids understand, support them in understanding and knowing their values, support them in their own unique exploration of the world and what lights their on their soul on fire at an early age, um, and so su- in supporting that, I love Brene Brown said something recently. I think it was on in her interview with Tim Ferriss, and she said. Um, you know what? We don't let our kids decide what they're going to major in. So I think she has a daughter who's in university now. She's like, we don't let, we're not letting her decide what her focus is for the rest of the, her life. That's artificial pressure. Yeah. We want our kids to be out there exploring and staying open to what are my passions? What do I love to do? And when I do more of what I love to do, where does it lead me? And to be honest, that's not dissimilar. In fact, it's exactly the same as what I talk about in sabbatical. It's like following your passions, following what lights your soul on fire, what you could do for hours on end and not get paid for it and see what doors the universe opens as a result of taking those steps yeah I well, was definitely it, not getting that message when I was young <laughs> oh
2: yeah I mean there's no way I got that message when I was young I mean I'm Indian like you would never get that message right. I mean anybody who grew up, who grew up with Indian parents would be like, yeah no that sounds like a bunch of new age bullshit stop mm-hmm. um, or even my though these are, the, these are the same very very people who believe in reincarnation as well so and who have no explanation whatsoever for any of their religious traditions other than you know my cousin is like this is kind of more superstition than it is religion. <laughs> Totally. Um, Well,
1: I didn't even understand values, right? I mean, not to say we did we weren't raised on values.
2: Absolutely. I
1: didn't understand it in the way that understand it now. And I think one of the hardest exercises in the world, and I make my clients do this all the time, is to say, what are my top two values, maximum three, that are the lens through which I, you know, make all of my decisions in life. Uh-huh. And I realized it's- that mine were freedom, authenticity, and courage. And that is what started to guide Soulbatical and then helped me create the life I live today.
2: Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of the Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Yeah. Well, I love that we're we're talking about validation in particular, and you brought up teenagers because I think there's no other time in your life where you make such a big deal out of validation. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, childhood rewards you for fitting and adulthood rewards you for standing out. And I I distinctly remember this. I had a bad date two weeks ago, and like, you know, the end of the night, you know, we're walking out of, of... you know, where we're at. And this girl looks at me. She's like, you're socially awkward. And I'm like, yeah, so are lots of other people. I was like, you know what? I'm like, I haven't actually gotten to where I'm at by fitting in. So great. I'm sorry you think that. Um, and I'm like, let me think about people who are considered socially awkward. I was like, Elon Musk is socially awkward. Shit, that's turned out okay. Okay, cool. <sighs> Fine. You think I'm socially awkward. Uh, and it didn't, you know, it bothered me for like a day. And then I was like, yeah, great. Believe whatever the hell you want.
1: Well, exactly. And you know what? What a great filter for who your people are. You're not going yeah. to connect with people who are looking for like the the soft, easy, you know, do what's expected of us <laughs> approach. Of course not. No, because that's not, not your jam and those aren't your people. And that's not who's, who's consuming your work and listening to this podcast. And I mean, hell, if that was what you stood for, I wouldn't be on this podcast either because I'm a rebel.
2: Yeah. Hence the reason we have bank robbers and drug dealers as our guests. <laughs> right. Uh, so one thing that you actually said in the book, um, and this this is something I definitely didn't want to leave um, without talking about. I think it actually makes a perfect segue from you know validation. You know, you said you've carried around so much shame related to trying to make to take your own life, and for believing that it had to end to all find peace for not seeking support. This is a conversation that I think that as a society, we largely neglect. It's Ooh. so important. Um, so one talk is, you know, obviously, I think we need some context here uh, for people listening because yeah. they
1: haven't
2: have read the book yet. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And, and thank you for allowing me to talk about this because I think it is really, really important. And as, as you know... Well, I'll give the context and I'll talk about, you know, this is becoming a bigger part of my my life and my mission. And in fact, a portion of my proceeds from sales of the book go to the Life is Priceless Foundation, which supports mental health awareness and research and suicide prevention. It's something I'm incredibly passionate about. And we cannot be talking about mental health enough as far as I'm concerned, because we're certainly not talking about it enough today. So let me take you guys all back about uh, to, uh, about what was it? 2008. Um, and so, so about 12 years ago and I was in the midst of an epic divorce with my, um, my husband who I'd been with for about 10 years at that point, almost 11, actually. And uh, we were growing apart, and I had had a significant universe wake-up call. I got very, very sick from, uh, as I said, shooting all over myself and deciding to go to China, live in Shanghai for my, my job. And that ended up rocking my world because I got very sick. I was at the Mayo Clinic. I was being treated for about a year for a bacterial infection. Anyway, the details aren't important, but suffice it to say, when I came out of that, I started looking at my world very differently and that was the beginning of the end of my marriage and my divorce ended up because I asked for it it just ended up becoming an epic shit show and it was it was not kind it was probably not kind on on either one of our our sides and we were you know both squatting in the house because you know legally it was like who had the right to you know you know keep the loft and all of the things and and I because I had been raised, I mean, I say this in the book. Like, our, my family was like, you know what? We're the Paxtons. We're the life of the party. We have our shit together. Like, we're always the the rock solid people. And then we cry and deal with our stuff alone behind closed doors. And when you come into a crisis situation in your life with that perspective. And that was how I was going through my divorce. And I was just seeing all of my, you know, my lifetime of earnings, getting flushed down the toilet. I was not able to ask for help. And so what I was doing was just you know, being the warrior. I was putting my armor on. It was fit polished to a shine. I was fooling everybody. I was showing up at work, doing my thing. And I was dying inside. And it was the first time that I started to realize like, oh, wait, if I'm in my body, my body's feeling very different. And I, I, at that point, I didn't know how to ask for help. I think that's the simplest way to say it. And it's the thing I want everybody who's listening to this to hear. You can always ask for help. And especially when I think about times we're going through right now and how important community and support is. I mean, it teaches us these lessons. We are here for each other. And I didn't know that at the time. And so I chose an exit that I'm very, very happy did not, I didn't succeed in trying to take a bunch of pills and end mm. my life. Yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky, right? Because I'm here today being able to say that, but I had, like you said, I had a lot of shame, around making Mm. that decision, instead of simply saying to somebody, whether it was a friend or family or a stranger, I need help. I'm not Mm. doing well. And so that's why I want to talk about it. I want to be a voice for somebody who, you know, didn't succeed in that suicide attempt, and who has created this incredible life for herself and for a community of people. And I want to help others who are at that place right now. That's a big part of my mission.
2: Yeah, there's one other aspect of that. I think the, this was the part that struck me the most was that it was this husband that you were in the middle of this contentious divorce with that quite literally saved your life by taking her to the hospital. And I thought to myself, what a mindfuck! Um, oh, because I had a I had a one of my best friends, probably my best friend, my closest friend in the world. Uh, he was in the middle of a divorce, and his wife died of a diabetic coma in the midst of the divorce oh. while he yeah, left him with a two-year-old daughter. And I, I asked him, I was like, Dude, how do you process that? Like, you know, obviously like things are not going well. You don't really have the ne- greatest feelings towards this person, but not so much that you want the mother of your children to die. And so, you know, to me, that was, and I guess now I finally am going to get to ask him in a more public forum because we're going to have him as a guest soon. But what, it, that's the ultimate mindfuck to me about this whole thing. How in the world do you process that?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was really, really tough. He, he, um, I don't want this to come off in any sort of callous way because I am incredibly, we, we have no contact anymore. We, we are, we're not friends. We're not in, in contact in any way. Uh, I suspect he's back in Turkey where he's from, but I don't know. Um, but it was, um, I really, really, I have so much gratitude for the fact, I mean, he could have very easily turned his back on the closed bedroom door and just said, oh, well, she's not responding. Fuck it. And went on with his life. And he listened to his spidey senses and said, something is wrong. And he literally broke down the bedroom door to come in and get me and get me to the hospital within minutes of me dying. And so you're right. It was a total mind fuck because I woke up to somebody who was like, now that I've saved your life, can we start over? Can we do better? Is this fixable? So it was like, that's like a mind fuck squared, because now he's looking at this as an opportunity to say, it's a fresh start for both of us. Like you did not need to take that path. He didn't literally say I saved your life, but I look at it that way. Um, and I had to do, uh, you know, I had to spend a lot of quiet time with myself to say, how do I really feel? Because Uh, you know, staying in a relationship that is no longer growing and blossoming and you're not on the same path together, you know, it's, that's not the right thing to do. If I'm still really, you know, if that's not going to happen, right. As a, as a thank you. Right. So when I, when I kind of got out of it, I mean, I had to spend time in a psych ward that I never talked to people about. I had to spend time because when you come out of that, they don't just let you free. They make you do the hard work. So I'm Mm -hmm. sitting in the psych ward doing some pretty hard work and I'm realizing, no, you know what, what I want for myself in my life and any future relationship is very different than what I have today. And I had to come to terms with that. And it was, you know, I kind of came out of it saying, sometimes you have to break your own heart. And Mm -hmm. I broke his heart and I broke my heart in order to start over. And that's how I got, that's how I got through it. But it was a lot of inner work and it was, it was help you know from from a lot of therapists uh along the way and some therapy work that I did for quite a while after that to make sure I was staying true to myself and to get clear on what I did want to create
2: wow thank you um so I want to finish by talking about community and I want to ask you a question about Harley Davidson in particular and this actually comes from something I've heard Seth Godin say numerous times I think it was in one of his books I think it might have been in Tribes He said, Harley Davidson doesn't make motorcycles. What they do is they bring a group of disconnected outsiders and make them connected insiders. Uh, And that always stayed with me. And I mean, you're the CMO, you're the former CMO of Harley Davidson. You, all people, are qualified to answer this question. One, why is that? Two, how do we do that with our own work and our own communities?
1: Oh, I love it. I thought a lot about this, and I, I think I wrote like a few, little, uh, a few little lines on just how I started to see the parallels with Harley. And the, the answer to that for, for me and all of my experience with Harley is like, Harley was never selling motorcycles. Harley was selling freedom. Harley was selling independence. Harley was like, what well, was, is, is selling freedom, is selling independence, is the great democratizer. Right. And so bringing outsiders to insiders, it's like it didn't matter if you were a plumber, a lawyer, a doctor or, you know, the the guy who owns the dry cleaner down the street. It didn't matter. You would put on your leathers, you would do your thing, you would sit and they would all come together for these beautiful rides and rallying around that freedom of expression and that very literal freedom that being on a motorcycle gives you. And that's exactly what the common bond, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I can't think of any other brand that people tattoo on their bodies with as much regularity as, as they do, you know, Harley Davidson, because it means that it doesn't mean, and that's, that's how Harley for so long was able to charge the premium and be the luxury motorcycle that it is. Um, you know, times are different, and the motorcycle market has shrunk, and the baby boomers are you know not riding anymore. so it's presented some big business challenges for them. But the heart of the community is is really in that. And so I think it's stay true to what you stand for, right? Because it's not about the things. It's not about the the product or the service itself. It's about the feeling that it creates. And that becomes a shared feeling and a shared expression for that community. And I would say for yours, it's so interesting because as you and I have been talking, I'm like, oh, I now understand why, especially your dating story from two weeks ago, I was like, oh, now I understand why I love his community so much. Because you're a fellow rebel. You're a fellow... um, You 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 pride yourself on standing out and on your unique voice and perspective in the world, and that's what brings the rest of us together around you in this community because we can be ourselves and share our voice, and that feels that's amazing. What you've created?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that I remember describing. I said, you know, this is the place for people on the internet who don't feel like they fit in anywhere else.
1: Yeah, perfect. I love that. Uh, and and it's truth and so i think i think that's so you know that's so strong i think people are trying to artificially create communities right and it's and it's not based on something that is genuine that is coming from the soul and you're talking about like the essence of your being is exactly that and you attract people whose essence of their being is exactly that very much in the same way as to why you know harley riders are attracted to Harley motorcycles because it's, it's freedom and expression and, you know, democratization of the outsiders, right? It's cool.
2: I love it. Well, I think that makes a perfect place to bring our conversation full circle and ask what I think is a really fitting question given what we just talked about. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: It's so, so it's so funny. I think I just answered that question. I was laughing. I know. I know what you're I was thinking that about. too. And, and actually, because I listened to your podcast and I'm a huge fan, I was like, well, that is my question. Like, It is having the courage to ha- be a unique voice. It is the courage to stand out and rebel for who you are and what you believe in. That's what I think the answer to that question is.
2: Ah, I love it. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share your story, your insights, and your wisdom with our listeners. This has been one of my favorite conversations I've had this year. It's and so
1: fun. Thanks for saying that. I have really enjoyed it.
2: Absolutely. Uh, it was funny. Some guests said, I bet you say that to everybody. I said, no, I don't. Trust me. Uh, Oh, uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Yeah, the easiest places are my website, which is solbatical.com. And solbatical spelled with two B's and one T because it's a made up word and I want it to be spelled that way. Um, So solbatical.com, which will have all the things. You can actually... Um, order you know, buy my book from there. It clicks out to the the, the book page on Simon and Schuster's website. You can also follow me on at Solvatical on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Uh, you can and you can find my book anywhere where books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your favorite local indie bookshop. I'm I'm a huge fan of going that route. Um, and you can click on either the link in my Instagram bio or in my on my website, and that'll take you through where you have a ton of options where you can buy the book.